I just want to thank Tim and the worship team. I think given the circumstances and the elements here, I think they've just done a wonderful job in continuing to lead us in worship. And I appreciate the work that I know that they, uh, they do. I want to uh, invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 16. The Gospel of Luke, chapter 16, and we're going to read uh, beginning with verse 19. And Jesus here is the teacher of this, what I believe is a parable, and he uh, intends for us to understand some truths. I will invite you to stand as we receive this word. Remember again that Jesus is sharing this with us. And this is how Jesus begins. He says, there was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried in Hades where he was in torment. He looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. And Abraham replied, they have Moses. And the prophets, let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. May God add his blessing to his word. Please be seated. Well, as I noted last Sunday, Pastor David attempted to refute my explanation that life is like camping in a tent. Hard, frustrating, and not too much fun. And I think my point was true, and, and certainly it was biblical. That Boy Scout, uh, that Eagle Scout David, actually tried to, to make the point that if you're prepared, as every good scout is... Your camping will be a vacationer's dream. After all, the scout's motto is, be prepared. I'm just not so sure. You know, there is a, a rather significant segment of our population out there called preppers. Have you heard of them? They're prepared for more than just camping. They are people who are prepping, preparing for the end of the civilization as we know it. They may spend vast amounts of money and time preparing for any number of calamities. Natural disasters, terrorist attacks, nuclear incidents, economic, social, and political collapse. 
Jim Baker, the disgraced televangelist many years ago, is to my surprise still on television, and I saw part of his show the other day where he was hawking huge tubs of rice and pancake mix and all kinds of survivalist food that would last for 30 years. I, I would think, you know, these, the, these folks want to be ready for whatever could go wrong. And I must say that that's not all wrong. I, I, I appreciate some of that. And it caused me to think, and I began to wonder, there's probably not many, but there might be a few who would qualify as preppers in this room. Maybe, maybe you've taken some steps. Uh, maybe you've got some MREs in your cellar or your, you know, those, those meals ready to eat or something like that. Or maybe you have uh, done some canning or you've got a stockpile of some sort. You've stored food. You've, you've got a generator in case of calamity. In fact, if, if that's you, uh, would you just raise your hand? All right, good, good. Because I'm taking notes because I need to know when it happens where I'm going. Because you know... I can't survive one night in a tent, so I'm going to need some help. I'm not going to survive, so George, be ready, be ready. And I'm knocking on your door, because that's where I'm going, that's for sure. National Geographic used to have a show called Doomsday Preppers. Maybe some of you saw that. In fact, doomsday literally is a word that means the day of last judgment. The day of last judgment. Do you know that part of our church's mission is really doomsday preparation. Now, we don't describe it that way, of course, but, but that's what we're all about. A, a lot of what we read in Scripture is to prepare us for the next life. The Scriptures awake us to the reality that much of this life is to prepare for the next, that this life comes and goes like a wisp. But there is an eternity that we face, and we know it's coming. The Bible says it is appointed unto man once to die, and then comes the judgment. We, we know that when Jesus returns, there will be a day of judgment. So we need to think and see our lives in view of that day. We need to prepare for it. Now, what's interesting is, is that if you read the Gospels, you find that Jesus actually talks a lot about preparing for that day. He talks a lot about what happens when we die. And, and what's surprising to me is as you study the scriptures, you begin to realize that Jesus actually talks more about hell than he talks about heaven. He warns more about hell than he celebrates heaven. Dr. Maurice Rawlings from the University of Tennessee, a cardiologist, interviewed more than 300 patients who had some kind of near-death experience. Now, what made his research so distinctive and unique is they interviewed these people almost immediately after their experience. And so that meant that their memories were fresh. They hadn't had time to reflect and change and, and, and contort them. And so his conclusion was telling. And here's what he wrote. Dr. Maurice Rawlings wrote, just listening to these patients has changed my life. There is life after death. And if I don't know where I'm going, it's not safe to die. Now, I want you to think about that phrase. It's just not safe to die. If you don't know what happens next, it's not safe to die. If you don't know where you're going, 
Don't die. This morning, we've read a parable where Jesus is communicating some important truths to us. Now, let's begin. In this story, we see a beggar, and his name is Lazarus. When he dies, he enters into paradise. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. That's the place where, where we wait for the second coming of Christ. It is a comforting place. It is a place where the soul rests and waits for the coming of Jesus. But we also see this rich man, and he dies, but he goes to Hades. And I want to just pause here for a moment because I want to be clear about something. The point of the story is not that a rich man goes to hell. In fact, what's interesting is, is that when this man, this rich man, looks up from Hades, he sees Lazarus by Abraham's side. Abraham, as you remember, was a very wealthy man in this life. He was very blessed in many ways. He was wealthy. And by the way, most of us in this room are considered wealthy. But I do think it's worth noting, though, that the, the, the man who went to heaven was poor on earth, and, and the man who went to hell was rich on earth. And here's why I point that out. It's just one of the many examples that you see in the New Testament that shoots down the whole prosperity gospel theme that is so prevalent on religious television today. And so many of you are watching these, these charlatans that are out there, and I want to warn you as your pastor, stay away from them. And the idea is, is if you love God, if you really love God, you're going to be healthy and wealthy. And if you're not healthy and wealthy, then there's something wrong with your relationship with God. You don't have enough faith. You don't love God enough. And I want you to know that that's just not true. We can be near to God and not be healthy or wealthy in this life. But as I read these words of Jesus, it occurs to me that there, are, that there are some in this room, perhaps, that one of the reasons you find it difficult to even consider accepting the free gift of salvation that God offers you is that you have a loved one, someone that you cared immensely about who has died. And you don't think they knew Jesus. It, it almost feels like a decision to, to come to Christ, to accept his gift, might be turning against them. Because you really want to be with them. And, and, and it, it pains you to think about not being with them. I want you to notice this request. The one main concern that this rich man had was this. Please tell my family. Please warn my brothers. Don't let them come where I am. That's what he cared about. He desperately wanted his loved ones to know the truth. Now, of course, we notice Abraham's response. Abraham responds, but they have Moses and the prophets. They have the Bible. It's very clear. It teaches Remember, of course, that the Bible says that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Abraham had faith in God, trusted him, and that was enough. It was his salvation. Abraham is saying, in a sense, I have already told them. They have my story. They have the story in Scripture. The rich man says, if someone comes back from the dead, then they'll listen. 
And Abraham says, if they do not listen to God's word, even if someone rises from the dead. Now, think about who's telling the story. Even if someone rises from the dead, they're still not going to be convinced. Because it's an issue of the hardness of the heart. Sometimes we, we try to talk about salvation in terms of if I could just get it over, get over the philosophical objections, then I could then I could listen, more and more often I've discovered in ministry it's an issue of the heart. We don't want to agree with God. We don't want to say he's in charge and I'm not. Jesus says, even if even if someone rises from the dead, there are people who will not listen. Now, I, I want you to know up front. I don't like talking about hell. I don't like thinking about it. I don't like having to expound on it. And I want you to know next week we're going to talk about heaven. And we're going to have to take a couple of weeks to talk about heaven. And if you're here this morning, please come back because I want to talk about heaven. But I also remember R.C. Spurl, he said to a bunch of pastors, he said, look, your job is to believe and to preach and teach what the Bible says is true, not what you want it to say is true the key always is what's true abraham lincoln once asked an audience how many legs a calf has if you count the tail as a leg well the audience answered five of course lincoln said no that's the wrong answer it's four the fact that you called the tail a leg did not make it a leg now, that's applicable, isn't it? In our society today, in a whole host of ways, we can apply that. What is true? It's not about whether we like it or want it to be true. It is about what is true. J. Vernon McGee put it this way. He said, this is God's universe, and he's doing things his way. You may think you have a better way, but you don't have a universe. You get your own universe, and then we'll talk. Now, there is, of course, some debate in Christian circles about whether hell is temporary or whether it is eternal. The Bible, in fact, uses the word everlasting to describe hell and its devastation. It's used in Matthew 25 and 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 8. It says, he will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus they will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Now, I want you to think about that. I did a little research on that word everlasting and, and tried to understand what it means. And it's very interesting. The word everlasting means lasting forever. Pretty simple. There's no way around it. When we talk about heaven, we have no problem thinking about heaven being eternal, everlasting same word is applied to hell. And so the Bible says that hell is everlasting. There are other snapshots in Scripture that help us see what hell is like. In Matthew 13, it's described as a fiery furnace. There's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Matthew 25, it's a place of outer and utter darkness. Luke 16, the passage we've read, it's described as agony. Revelation 20 portrays hell as a second death. In Isaiah 66, it says it's a place where the worm does not die. 
So if you think about it, it is a place of physical suffering, mental suffering, emotional suffering, spiritual suffering, because it is a place where God is not. And I would point out this morning one specific area that we don't often think about, but it is a place of relational suffering. You know, in our culture today, sometimes hell is depicted as a party place, as a kind of party ever going. We hear it described in our culture when people will say, they raised hell last night. The idea is hell is some kind of big frat party. I'm not sure where they get that. But hell at its essence will be a lack of community. And we see evidence of that in Luke 16. We see Lazarus who goes to Abraham's side which is a, a, a sign of community. He's a part of the people of God. He's a part of the promise of God. There's comfort. There's connection. He's known. Did you notice that we know his name? But notice that the rich man is by himself. We don't even know his name. Community begins with knowing someone's name. This rich man would have gotten all kinds of press and people knew him in this life. I have read that one of the worst feelings you can experience as a human being on this side of heaven is the feeling of utter loneliness. That complete isolation is a form of torture. And so one theologian described hell as nothing but yourself. For all eternity. Serious stuff. And of course the question arises. Why would God create a place like this? I mean what kind of twisted mind comes up with this? Why would he if God is light and love. Shut us out from his presence. And his glorious might. In other words, this is a place, the Bible teaches, that God has, has set aside and said, you know what? I'm not going to be there. I'm removing my presence. Matthew 25, 41 describes the day of judgment where Jesus says on that day, God will say to those on his left, depart from me. You who are cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Depart from me. It is a place outside of God's presence. Listen, so God did not have to create a fiery hell to, to cause unspeakable devastation. He just allowed a space where he wasn't. And when you take God out of the equation, that's hell. Think about that. Is it any wonder, my friends, when we see our society becoming more and more secular, as we take God out of the public spaces, what do we see happening? Society becomes more hellish. Mass shootings, racism, rampant drug addiction, suicide rates on the rise, families broken, simple acts of compassion become abnormal. There is so much anger around us. Because you take God out 
hell fills the void. And so the biggest objection, if we could just switch gears for a moment and talk about how we feel about this doctrine, and it has been described as the hideous doctrine, and I believe that, but the biggest objection of hell is like this. How can a loving God send people to hell? And here's how that goes. You talk about hell being such a horrible place, but God as if he is a loving father. How can a loving father send someone to hell? Because either God is a loving father... Or hell is horrific, but it can't be both. How could a loving father send people to hell? But what do we see when we read about hell in Scripture? We see it even in this passage in Luke 16. Verse 31, warn them. It's a warning. Again and again we see God reaching out to us as a warning and when we hear people talk about it, we often think of hell as a threat. If you don't do this, if you don't get your act together, you're going to hell. We hear it as something, as a threat. What we need to understand is when the scriptures talk about hell, it's a warning. And you say, well, pastor, what's the difference? Most of us as parents know the difference between threatening our children and warning them, don't we? You say to your child, look, if you do this, here's what's going to happen. This is what it's going to look like. This is what's going to... Now, sometimes we threaten them, don't we? Because, But sometimes we just lay it out. This is what's going... You go down that direction. You keep going that way. This is what's going to occur. We warn them. Why? Why do we do that? Because we love them. You may not like it. You may not agree with it. You may think it's awful that that's the, 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 that's what happens. But I know that you're a child. I'm your parent. This is the way the world works. I'm warning you. You go this path. You make that choice. This is what's going to happen. Please don't. I love you too much not to tell you. And I understand this objection because, look, I'm a dad. I have four great kids. I can't imagine. I can't fathom this idea. I don't care how much my kids hurt me or reject me. But think about this. Let's say that you are the parent of a child who has gone their own way. They have utterly rejected you. He or she has decided that they want nothing to do with you. They shun you. They shun your love. They, they, they don't want to hear from you. They don't want to see you. They don't want your help. They have rejected you and how you taught them how to live. So what are you going to do as a parent? What do you do as a parent when your child has utterly rejected you and has made that choice? Well, isn't there a part of you, and I think some of you may even, in fact, know this. There's a part of you in that moment, I suspect, where you want to go find them, tie them up, throw them in the trunk, bring them home, tie them to a bar or a, a, a support beam in your basement and say, you're going to love me and we're going to be happy about it, right? There's a part of you that that's exactly what you want to do. Just tie them up and hold them there. But what's the problem? That's not how love works. Love is freedom. It's choice. Peter Kreef is a philosopher, and he explains it this way. He says, look, because 
God is love. Because he is love, those who do not wish to love God must be allowed not to love him. And those who do not want to be with God must be allowed to be separated from him. So the answer to the question of why would God send people to hell is that he doesn't. He will let people choose to reject him, and we do that when we choose sin. And that's why sin is so dangerous. It blinds us to see the love of God. We don't want to live in his presence, and if you don't want to live in his presence, he won't make you. That's why sin is so serious. Sin says, God, I don't want to have anything to do with you. I'm going to do things my way. I like being in charge. And God's got, going to tie you up and put you in a trunk. He's not going to tie you to the pearly gates and say, you sit there until you get your act together. That's not what's going to happen. C.S. Lewis put it this way. He said, in the long run, the answer to those who object to the doctrine of hell is itself a question. What are you asking God to do? To wipe out sin at all costs and give them a fresh start? He did. To forgive them? They don't ask for forgiveness. Here it is, to leave them alone. Is that your problem? You want them to be left alone. That's what hell is. He goes on to say there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who will say to God, thy will be done. And those, who will say, and those to whom God will say, Thy will be done. My friends, this morning, even now, and I know this is a hard doctrine, but God is even now reaching out to us, warning us. He, he's given us the Bible. He sent his son. His son came as a teacher, and then his son died for us and rose again from the dead to attest to his power and truth and authority. And even this morning, he's given us this moment today, and he's reminded us that our sinful nature will always try to deny him. But we have a choice. God, I want your will to be done in my life. I want to be a part of your family. And by the way, the scripture says that, that it is God's will that none should perish. He sent Jesus, and when we put our faith in Christ, remember, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, read that as hell, should not go to hell, but have everlasting life. Isaiah 53, but he was wounded for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, and by his stripes we are healed. Can I just say one more thing? Notice in this passage, this rich man does not blame God. He's not bitter. He doesn't believe that there has been some great injustice that's been done. He just wants to warn his family. He just wants to warn us. He just wants to warn you. I think the thing that I think about probably more than anything is, Lord, how many people come to church every Sunday and they still don't know you? 
do you know Jesus Christ? And on that day of judgment, will you be in confidence and saying, Lord, I'm yours. It's not my righteousness, it's his. It's what you've done for me. And I'm part of your family. Even today, God is speaking to you. Now, if you're a part of the family, it's great. But we need to be a people who pray for those who are still lost. We need to care about our community. We need to care about each other. If you haven't made a clear decision for Jesus, I invite you to do that today. I'd invite you to take even another step. This morning or this afternoon, I should say, we're going to do the baptism. You know, the Bible puts uh, our, our decision and baptism very, very quickly and closely together. And I'd say this, if you, if you make this decision this morning, I'd invite you to come back and be baptized tonight because there's something powerful about that testimony that seals it in our minds and for our community that I belong to Christ and I'm a part of his family and I am not ashamed of it. Some of us are afraid to get wet because, well, well, we'll look bad. Or Please, please rejoice in the salvation he's given you. Let's pray together. Lord, I thank you for this difficult message. I know it is a difficult one to preach. And, Lord, I've prayed all week, and I've seen the spiritual battles that I've been facing as I've been called to deliver this message. But I believe this morning... There is at least one who needed to hear this message. And they need to get right with you. And they need to make a decision to follow after you. And I pray, Lord, that we would walk each of us out of here this morning knowing that we are a part of your family. We thank you for that great salvation that we sang about this morning. We thank you for what Christ has accomplished. We thank you, Lord, for the hope that we have. Because without him, Lord, we are nothing. Friend, this morning, if... If you're ready to make the decision to choose to follow Jesus and give him your life, I just pray and ask that you pray this simple prayer with me. Father, this morning, my eyes are open. I realize that eternity is a very long time. I want to spend my eternity with you. And so, Jesus, I come to you so grateful for what you did for me on the cross. I recognize my own sin, and I need a Savior. Lord, you are that Savior to me. Your power is sufficient. And, Lord, I give my life to you. And with all my heart, Lord, I choose to follow you. And I will to the best of my ability, through the power of your spirit, choose to follow you and seek to obey your commands that I might become more and more like Christ. If you've prayed that prayer and you believe it, the Bible says that you are a new creation. You've been born again. You are washed in his blood. And I want to welcome you to the family. You know, the Bible says that there is rejoicing over one sinner who repents. That means that they throw the party in heaven. And if you've said yes to his gift, there's a great party going on right now. If you know Christ, I 
If you've accepted Christ this morning, would you, would you let me know that? Would you have the confidence and the boldness to say, Pastor, I prayed that prayer with you. I made a decision. I'd like to know it. If you'd like, if you're willing, we would be happy to have you participate in the baptism this afternoon. Father, I thank you that you're working. I pray our church might always be obedient to your word, that we would not, that we would not bend to the whims of culture, but instead, Lord, we would be consistent to rely on your word as sufficient, Lord, to give us an understanding of your great salvation. We pray this through Jesus Christ, our Lord.
until he returns. Till he returns or calls me home. Here in the power of Christ, I'll stand. Amen. This message is ultimately great news. It is good news. God has reached out to you. He's delivered his, his message to you even this morning. And if you've heard it a thousand times, be refreshed and be renewed and know this, that God knows your name. And you're his child. And you will be with him forever. You need not fear death. It has no power on you because you belong to Christ. But as long as we have breath on this earth, we are called to, to share the good news and to care for those, show them the way, to warn them, for, in fact. May we be diligent in that work. I love you and I thank you for giving me the privilege to share this morning. May this message be received with a, with a heart that it's been presented. Let's pray. Oh God, Thank you for this sweet people. Thank you that you love them so very much. And you see them as your children. And Lord, you reach out to that one. You leave the 99. You go to that one. Even in their brokenness and lostness and sin. And you tenderly call them to yourself. Lord, I thank you for this great story that has made all the difference in my life. I pray, Lord, that we will be a church filled with people who say yes to Jesus. And if someone has come and said yes this morning, Lord, may we be a church that disciples them, allows them to grow so that, Lord, they can multiply Thank you for meeting with us. Your spirit is so sweet. May we never experience a moment without your presence. I pray this in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, amen. amen. Thank you. God bless you.